September 31st is 2012. Our message this evening is called Between the Trees. Uh, there is enough of this message that could bore you to tears that I'm going to just do my best to explain some things that are beautiful in the Bible in a way that, uh, I don't know, I, it, it touches me and I hope it will touch you. I had envisioned having a giant grease board here to be able to write on and um, the problem with having great vision and no administrative skills is often things don't happen. <laughs> so uh, in any case, we're going to do our best with the PowerPoint. And uh, let's go to that first slide, y'all. Uh, I want to talk to you about something in Exodus. There's way too many scriptures for me to read. I want to encourage you that everything that is on that screen in that little bitty print that you're straining at right now is going to be in larger print on later slides. But there is something called a chiastic structure. This occurs in uh, literature of every kind, but it occurs with great frequency in the Bible. And chiastic structure has to do with a pattern that might go something like A, B, C, D, D, C, B, A. It has to do with an order being laid out and then an abrupt uh, turning point. This causes an emphasis where the turn occurs. It is an aid in memorization. If if you know that it begins and ends in the same place, all you have to do is figure out the middle. And in Hebrew, very often, we see this structure all over the Bible. The book of Exodus is written in a chiastic structure. And I wanted to give you kind of an example of that. Let's go to the next slide, Joy. Where we start with this uh, is the glory of the Lord is revealed in Exodus 24. This is one of the chiastic structures in Exodus, not all of them. And in 24, 15 through 18, we see the glory of the Lord being revealed on Mount Sinai. As you move through the book, chapters 25 through 30, talk about instructions for building a tabernacle. And then the call of Bezalel, a man anointed to build its furnishings by the time you get to Exodus 31. You keep going with that and immediately following you have instructions on a Sabbath, which is kind of an interesting thing followed by two tablets that are given. This could be broken up into an A, a B, a C, and a D. But as you carry it forward, the next slide, there is a turning point. Two tablets are broken. By starting with an A, a B, a C, a D, breaking of tablets, and then moving to a D, C, B, and A, it emphasizes that God uh, wanted you to see that the law was broken. But it emphasizes more than that. The chiastic structure has to do with we are headed this direction, something happened, and we are turning around and going back. The Bible story is one long chiastic structure, and we'll show you that. After the turning point, we have two tablets that are restored. Come on now, don't you like that word? We go from broken tablets to restored tablets. We went from instructions about the Sabbath to them being restated in a way that emphasizes relationship with God and man. Then we move to the building of a tabernacle, not just instructions on the tabernacle, but the carrying it out and the actual calling of the man named Bezalel that built most of the furnishings. And then when it was all done, the glory of the Lord was revealed in that tabernacle. Go to that next slide. What you see with this is you see the glory of God appears. There's instructions on how to build a house for him. Then there's instructions on how you would be in relationship with him. And then his law is given. His law is broken. What does it do when we separate from, or when we break law? It separates us from God. 
So he began to show us how he could restore the law. He gave us instructions again on relationship with him. He built a tabernacle for his name to dwell in that we could see. And then he revealed his glory again. This is the story of man when you think about it. Man begins in a garden-like state with God. But the Bible has him falling from that state with God. The decline of man, if you will. But there's a turning point in history. And it's the cross. And from the cross, we lean back towards learning to restore our relationship with God. Learning to dwell with Him again. This chiastic structure is used for a lot of reasons. It's not just an academic tool. It's to repeat and repeat and repeat so that it gets ingrained in people. We actually see it all over the Word. I'll give you these. They'll be on, online as well. If you took this chiastic structure that, follow my hand, starts with an A, moves to a B, then a C, then a D, and then comes back to C, B, and A, and you turned it upright, we would have waves, we would have amplitude, we would have crests and valleys, high points where you were very close to God, low points where you were very far from God, and when you began to put these repeating patterns together over and over and over, it might look something like birth pains. See, the promises of God start off very broad. Uh, from all uh, of mankind will come one deliverer, right? And this stays broad until you find out, blessed be the God of Shem. Now it's narrow again. And then Shem's, de Shem's descendants begin to multiply all over the earth. And it's broad again. We don't know who. We don't know where. Then, of course, a man who's a descendant of Shem named Abraham comes and he says, it's going to be through your family. Narrows again. Then his family grows and grows and grows. It widens again. And then it's going to be reckoned through one of Jacob's sons, Judah, Genesis 49 said. And it narrows again. And what we're seeing are contractions and expansions. And the actual Bible stories have this same kind of rhythm. They have contraction and, and, and expansion. They have a rhythm and a meter to them that is teaching us something. It's teaching us that there's a turning point. We see this as we move forward. You can go to the next slide. <laughs> By the time we get to Philippians in the New Testament, you see another way that this is done. In Philippians 2, you can turn there in your Bibles. Tell me when you're there. It'll be Philippians 2 and verse 6. Philippians 2 can be put into the same chiastic structure. I usually draw it differently, but it's, it's very close. Listen to these verses. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When you think about this, and you can see it written on your screen, it's a little bit like a wave that is beginning to crest or a man coming downstairs, reaching a bottom, and going back upstairs. We start with equality that was not needed to be grasped. And then another step down, made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. And then another step down, humbled himself and became obedient. 
Now the turning point. His obedience went so far as the cross. Now we God begins to elevate him. Verse 9, therefore God exalted him. Verse 10, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. Verse 11, that every tongue would confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God. What we see in this very structure that is written on the screen, because we see a kind of contraction or an expansion followed by a contraction, these are birth pains. The, the story of God is one that stretches out to all mankind and then singles down to a, a, a specific son. It, it stretches out to everybody in the world but can only occur through one race. It, it is uh, for everybody and fills the whole earth, yet it starts with you. The kingdom's within you. And this story is repeated many times in many ways, hoping that we will get it. Now, I don't know where you are, whether at the top of the mountain, the crest, or at the contraction at the bottom of the valley, but how many of you in here have been through labor? Come on now, raise your hands high if you've been through labor. Not an easy process, huh? Sometimes you have to take deep breaths. Sometimes there's tears. Sometimes it is just downright a serious struggle to bring forth life. And the creation is going through that so that the sons of God would be revealed. That chiastic structure that shows up in Exodus, it can also be found in Genesis. It can also be found in almost every book of the Tanakh. And the idea is that the promises of God would be so specific that you would know when they were fulfilled and so broad that they could include all of mankind. That is an amazing thing. You know, that is a really beautiful, amazing thing. God goes so far as to say in Genesis 1.14, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark seasons, days, and years. Apparently, our God wanted you to mark seasons, days, and years. Why? Why does a God who is eternal care what time it is? Yeah, I'm a pastor and most of my day. I don't care what time it is. Why does God care what time it is? He set a marker for us. He wanted us to know with this ebb and flow with this expansion and contraction that is trying to produce life. Hey, ladies, you know when, when you were uh, in labor, right, and somebody assigned stages to the labor? Uh, would you rather be the first one or the last one? <laughs> were you happy? Were you happy to make progress? You know, one of the most difficult things in the world for Jennifer when Abby was born is she stalled. Her labor stalled after 24 hours of uh, more dilation, of more contractions, of everything else, she stole. How heartbreaking. I had to go home with her, right? We went home, uh, not to be graphic, but we went home at five centimeters dilated. Any minute, baby could come. Any minute. Except minutes were going by and baby wasn't coming. You know how that plays with your mind? You think, what must be wrong, right? The creation is the same way. At times we draw close and we can see, we can see the very promises of God coming. May 14th, 1948 was one of those times. Israel was born in a single day and it's, oh my God, we're living out prophecy. Of course, as time goes by and Israel's under threat from all of the other nations and all, you're like, was that the fulfillment of the prophecy or will they again be dispersed and regathered? And, and you begin to wonder, and this is the normal expansion of, 
and contraction that occurs in our, in our lives. But it's necessary to birth life. I want to tell you that the call of God goes through a cycle just like this. When you were first called of God, Zeke, He overwhelms you with confirmation. Come on now, Matthew, you remember these days? I mean, you turned on the radio and REO Speedwagon was singing about Jesus, right? Everything was Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. I mean, you know, you're driving down the interstate and the left lane's closed and you're in the right lane and it's like Jesus left this one for me, right? And it feels that way. And then some time goes by and it's like he's expecting you to walk a little bit on your own and his hands are not on your shoulders. Unless, of course, you're stumbling. And then he's there. And, and this expansion and contraction grows us up. It produces life in us. You know, how, how do you know the difference between acceptable behavior? If, if I say, I'm going to talk to you about Tim, right? And uh, Tim still has a real problem uh, going to the bathroom in his own pants. The degree to which that bothers you is going to depend a lot on how old Tim is. If Tim is 30, that's one kind of problem. And if Tim is three months, that's another kind of problem, isn't it? Maybe not even a problem at all. Those signs and times that the, the age is a marker there to let you know whether you should be, whether you're on track or not. Are you following me? Yeah. Our time is the same way. So when the Bible says we're in the last days, it's to tell us to expect certain things. It's to, to let us know where on, on God's redemptive scale we're at. Salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The great lights, by the way, does anybody know what day the 14th chapter of Genesis is occurring on? Holler it out if you know. It's not. It's the fourth. Fourth day. Think about that. Fourth day. Now, if God sets lights in the expanse of the sky to separate day from night and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years and it's the fourth day, what about the previous three? Look, the whole point of introducing time was so that you would understand it. The whole point of introducing time was so that you could clearly mark off where we were in the redemptive plan. If the first few days are different from the last few days, then they would serve no point. The reason he says the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day is so that you would recognize it as... A day. God is not trying to trick you. He instituted time so that you could look and see where you were at in progress. Actually, there's nowhere on the planet that you can't look up and see the stars. It's like he always wanted you to know what time it was in the redemptive cycle. And by the way, anywhere you are on the planet, it gets dark and then it gets light. Sometimes darkness is longer than you want it to be. If you're in Alaska, for instance... But you're always moving from darkness to light. What do you think he is trying to tell us? Mm. You want to know if there's hope for your life. Well, there's hope for the planet. It started in darkness and it's moving to light. Every day we see the same cycle, like an expansion and a contraction and an expansion and a contraction. But there's a constant renewal of hope. The pessimist says, yeah, but it gets dark all of the time. Of course, the child of God says, yes, and light overcomes it every day. This struggle in our life matures us, and the more darkness to light you see, the more confident you are the sun will come up tomorrow. Let's go to the next slide. There's a place where time did not exist. This is not just a theological construct. The Bible actually teaches it. Look at 2 Timothy 1. 
starting in 9. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Before the what? Beginning of time. There is a point at which time began. I didn't make that up. This is something that Paul took for granted as common knowledge speaking to Timothy. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought us life. Death to life. Darkness to light. And immortality uh, to light through the gospel. A way to reverse the death process. I'm saying all of this to say that the Bible story is a repeating theme. The same way that Comic books have repeating themes in them. The same way that sitcoms have repeating themes. Have you ever, ever wondered why they have writers for those things? Mm. I mean, why is it not just one long story? Why do you have to have a writer? Why do you have to have a group of writers? Because they get used to setting up the same kind of situations and having the same kind of humor applied. And it develops character. And the characters make up a bigger story. And something about it attracts you to it so that you remember it years after the, effect, uh, after the fact. The Gospels do the same thing. The Bible does the same thing. Except it's all true. None of it was made up. By divine inspiration, these men wrote in a way that was supposed to speak a message to us. It would get very broad. Then it would get very specific. It would get very hard. Then it would get much more easy. Blessed. It would get very dark, and then it would get light, and expansion, contraction, birth pains. Those scriptures across the bottom of the screen are one, two, three, four, five, six other places that imply time had a beginning. Let's look at Leviticus 23. In Leviticus 23, it says, The Lord said to Moshe, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, These are my appointed feasts. The feast of the appointed feast of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. I've said this many times before, and we will not teach on it tonight, but I just want to tell you the word sacred assembly here is mikra. A mikra is a sacred assembly. It's why it's translated that way. No mystery there. It also in Hebrew means to rehearse. There would be appointed things that the people would assemble separate themselves from the world for, and would serve as a rehearsal for something. The idea being the more you rehearse, the more you would expect and understand and recognize a reality. Listen to the very first thing. When we name the Feast of the Lord, we almost never start where God did. If I ask you what the first feast in Israel is, almost everybody universally says Passover, because it is the first thing that we call a feast. And yet when he's speaking about feast, look at verse 3. There are six days when you may work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest, a day of sacred assembly. You are not to do any work wherever you live. It is a Sabbath to the Lord. Before we could ever get to the place where we're looking at uh, feasts that display God's glory, feasts that are rehearsed, we had to learn, first learn to count to seven. Right? God gave us three extra fingers, three extra toes, right? He wanted us first to understand there would be a pattern. In this expansion and in this contraction, in this uh, darkness uh, moving to light, in this constant ebb and flow like waves of righteousness sweeping over the creation without stopping, there would be a beginning and there would be an end. By the way, Exodus 40 says that the tabernacle of Moses, it was completed and inaugurated on the first day of the first month. Why do you think that is? God would start by dwelling with his people. 
He would remove death from them. You can go to the next slide. He'd remove death from them. Then he would move through their house on unleavened bread by the light of his spirit, and he would show them how to remove sin from their lives. Then he would give us an example, the first fruits to rise from among the dead. After Jesus raised from the dead, we have a turning point in human history where the very substance of the Father would be poured into you on Shavuot or the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. Then we would have a long wait before we got to trumpets that would announce something. Rosh Hashanah would announce atonement for Israel is coming. Then we would finish in the seventh month with tabernacles. The plan of God would be complete. What started as one tabernacle in one nation with one people group on the planet worshiping one God would now be celebrated in all human beings that were tabernacles for His presence. What started in the first week would be done in the seventh. What began in the first would be complete in the seventh. And we repeat that how many times in a year? Well, our weeks, there's 52 in a year. It's 52 rehearsals. It's a pattern of seven. Six days a man works on the seventh day, rest. Six days you get to get frustrated, working, fighting, trying to get something to come out of the earth. And on the seventh day, he does for you what you could never do for yourself. It's a pattern. It's there. It's all over the word. It's part of that ebb and flow. It's part of that contraction. Judaism sanctifies time. It sanctifies time because they are the standard bearer for God's people. Their calendar, their history, their culture is supposed to teach us about God's plan. Do you find it strange that in 325, right after the Roman Empire has taken over Christendom, one of the first things they did in addition to the Nicene Creed, one of the first things they did was separate the Hebrew calendar from the Christian calendar? They made it so that Passover and Easter never occurred at the same time. And they did it intentionally. This is satanic, friends. Those men may not have been satanic. Their desires may have appeared noble. But what is satanic about it is it obscures God's plan. How many of you just go, wow, there's something different about today? Yes, that's right. It's Rosh Hashanah. You have to read it on a calendar. You have to see it in a news report. It's not a part of our society. And yet our Bible is supposed to be, our, our society was based and birthed out of what we call Judeo-Christian principles. Except somewhere along the way, we severed ourselves from the Judeo part of the Judeo-Christian principles. And so much of this is, forgive the double entendre here, is Greek to us. <laughs> you don't get that, do you? It's okay. It's Hebrew to us. We actually would understand Greek better. But in any case, working from one to seven, the prophetic calendar is carried out in these feasts. And what it would basically tell us is that there would be a period of seven and then God's work would be done. What he started with one nation would be done for all the nations. There would be a normal expansion and contraction. We can move to the next slide. In the Torah, you see a message that comes over and over and over. It's even in the naming of the books. It's a repeating pattern. How many times in the book of Judges did somebody fall under judgment and then God pick a special deliverer and with that deliverer liberate all of the people, right? He did it over and over and over. Well, the books of the Bible work the same way. Genesis in Hebrew is Bereshith. And it means in the beginning. Then Exodus, Shemoth. These are the names. 
And then Leviticus, Vayigra, uh, and the Lord called. And Numbers, Midbar, in the wilderness. Deuteronomy, these are the words. When you put it together, if you just said the first five books of the Bible in Hebrew, you would have a sentence that said, in the beginning, these are the names He called to in the desert and gave His word. It is a repeating pattern that goes over and over and over in the Scripture. And it's trying to teach us one thing. It doesn't matter how dark it is, the sun's going to come up. It doesn't matter how difficult this contraction is, it will be followed by relief. It does not matter what you're going through. Life is at the end of this because God has a plan for you. Amen. Is there nobody out there that that ministers to? Nobody in here has difficulties. Nobody feels a little squeezed by the narrow way sometimes. Let's move to the next slide. Genesis 2, 9, and Revelation 22, 2 through 3, contain these words, starting in Genesis 2, 9. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Then at the end of our Bible, Revelation 22, verse 2, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. Where did the curse enter? Brent, where did the curse enter? It starts in a garden. It starts with a decision at a tree in a garden, doesn't it? And yet the end of the book, we are in a garden with a tree without any curse. I want you to think about this for a minute. You can go to the next slide. Look at what this does to us. This means that in Alpha Eternity, before there was a decision made at this tree, things were pretty good. How long did it last? We have no idea. How long has God been around? Anybody in here have that carbon dating? Yeah. We have a scientist at UT that wants to speculate on how long God's been around? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth when? We don't know. We don't know. We know He instituted time to give us some system of measurement to know where we were in His plan. Before man ate from that tree, how old was Adam? We have no idea. He didn't age. If there was no reason to record time, you know why? He wasn't dying. He wasn't needing of restoration. And yet the Bible foresaw that there would be a need of restoration. From, so from the day that we have six days of creation... We can number our days. We may not know how old Adam was, but he knew. <laughs> they could count days and sanctify time because God instituted it. By the way, after we get to Revelation 22, when we're talking about what I'm calling Omega Eternity, how long are you going to be uh, eating the, the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations? Eternal. How long will you be in that paradise-like setting? Forever. How, how long is forever? Can anybody quantify it? Can anybody tell us how long that it is? So when we look at this uh, time period that we're in, if you look at it in a linear fashion as it is on the screen, before the first tree, we don't know how long. After the last tree, we don't know how long. But God has given us a system between the trees. And it is our normal 24-hour time period. And the pattern is constantly that there would be six days of work followed by a rest. Six days of work followed by a rest. Six days where man would rule man. And on the seventh day, he would know that God is God and he's not. Amen. 
You think he's trying to teach us something. There'd be an expansion. There would be a promise that says, you know what? I'm going to crush the devil's head. Then there'd be a contraction that's going to come through you, Eve. Then, of course, there's lots of women on the earth, so an expansion. And then a contraction. It'll be somebody in Shem's line. Contraction. Then Shem's descendants begin to spread all over the earth. Expansion. And then one of the Semites, Abraham. Contraction. And then Abraham has uh, two sons. Expansion. <laughs> Little expansion, only two. And it's going to be through Isaac that it's reckoned. Contraction. Then Isaac has Jacob and Esau. Expansion. It's going to be through uh, Jacob. Contraction. Jacob has 12 sons. Expansion. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you, there's a civil war fought over that expansion. Much later, we didn't know whether it would be the sons of Joseph or it would be the, the sons of Judah who the Messiah would come through. And that particular expansion lasted centuries. And then the lion of the tribe of Judah came. Contraction. Salvation was birthed. This pattern is going on in the Word and it's like the whole earth is groaning in pains of childbirth. Is it any surprise then that your life is full of expansion in the kingdom and contraction. And expansion and contraction. But we know that at some point, our work is done and God takes over. And we have a period of seven to teach us. We have seven feasts that took place in seven months. And the seventh feast was in the seventh month. I believe that our God loves us. I think that you can have an eternal perspective. And more than anything, what I hope you would learn tonight is not what a chiastic form is. It's, it's not that you'd be impressed with something that you've seen in Hebrew parallelism in the second chapter of Philippians. It would be that you would know beyond any shadow of a doubt that you could say what Paul wrote in Romans. I don't think our present sufferings are worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. Amen. What mother, when they're staring at their full-grown child and all of the Glory of the full-grown child, having made it, looks back and is mad about her contractions. I mean, I've never seen that happen. You're mad while you're having contractions. You're not mad when the baby is born. Yeah. This time period of difficulty, when we... I can't draw it, I wish I could. But if we put these two trees in the center of the room, you could go out to the left of the tree on the left, miles and miles and miles. If the tree on the right was over here, you could go out to the right of it. Miles and miles and miles. That kind of makes the time between the trees look like a little blip, doesn't it? You know, when Jennifer was having Judah, we had this monitor on her, right? I mean, they strap enough gadgets on a woman to make her look like Darth Vader as she's getting burned. And uh, with the very unique breathing techniques we were taught, we sounded a little bit like uh, Darth Vader, right? She learned to look over at that monitor and she could see the contraction build that she was feeling, but somehow or another to have a visual reference helped her know that it was going to peak and it was going to drop. Friends, you know what our visual reference is? It's the work of Christ in our brothers and sisters. Amen. It's the fact that we've been over 5,700 years from the creation mm -hmm. and we're still here. We have to be closer than we were when we started as a race. Yeah. 
You know, sometimes I don't know how much further to go I have, but I know how far I've gone, and it's too far to go back. Yeah. Yeah? Amen. You ever had a long swim? Yeah. You have to reach a place where you've decided, I can't go back anymore. I simply have to go to the other side, however far that is, because I can no longer swim the distance back. Mm -hmm. Yeah? That's where I'm at in the kingdom. I can no longer go back. I don't know how far I've got to go, but I'm going to strain for it. Amen. Turn with me to Romans 8. In Romans 8, let's pick up in the 18th verse. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. I would like to ask you who said this. Did he suffer a little bit or a lot? Let us just speak out loud a few of our sufferings. I ordered something at Starbucks yesterday. And then I spilled it in the car on the way to deliver it. I have the money for Judah's prescription lenses. But I have not yet scheduled the appointment. Yeah, it's terrible, isn't it? I, I want you to know that I have not one set of sheets, but four. But I forgot to wash. And tonight, I may have to reuse my one of my four sets of sheets. I think Cassie in the sermon called these first world problems. There was a time I was trimming my beard, and I didn't get it quite straight. I had to cut the whole thing off. It's terrible, isn't it? Terrible. The man who said, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us, was not talking about problems at Starbucks. He'd been shipwrecked. He'd been beaten. He'd been imprisoned. He'd seen his closest friends who once worked beside him walk away from the ministry. He'd seen others take the very principles he taught and twist them for selfish gain. He was within years of losing his life when he penned most of his letters. He said, what is happening now is not worth comparing with what will be revealed in us. It's almost as if he could look at the only scripture he had, the Hebrew Tanakh, and go, you know, we go through terrible times and we go through better times. We go through expansions and contractions and it's like birth pains and it is going to produce life. Maybe by the time you get to Romans 8.28 when he said everything works together for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. He understood that this was necessary for maturing. Maybe Jesus' Hebrew brother James understood that this was necessary. And so he said, count it pure joy when you suffer trials of many kinds. Saints, I would like us to develop a mature view. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Before we read these next lines, I would like to ask you, in our chiastic form, we started 
in perfect fellowship with God. How many ever steps we took away from Him, we got a long, long ways away from Him. And the lowest point in human history was when we met God in the flesh and didn't like Him, so we killed Him. But now we've begun the journey back to being restored in the presence of God, walking in the presence of God. And I don't know how far we have to go, but I know we're past the midway point. It's too far to go back. Are you hearing me? Yeah. Look at the next verse. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. If the earth itself is groaning to see salvation, how much more should we who, on whom the fulfillment of the ages has fallen? Your life is hard. I know it's hard. It's hard to produce life. It is. It's hard on the whole creation. How much more so the one who is bringing life? Okay, now ladies, you gotta, you got to hear me all the way out on this one, okay? <laughs> It's hard on the whole family when a baby comes. But it's hardest on the one who was bringing life. Is it not? Yeah. It's hard on the whole creation to see this happen. But it is hardest on us in whom Christ has been formed. Mm -hmm. Are you hearing? Yeah. But you know what you have? Christ formed inside you. Yeah. Is it worth it? Yeah. Of course it's worth it. Yeah. I'm going to give you a gift tonight. I'm not going to preach for an hour and a half. I'm going to stop here. And I'm going to say, let's let Christ be formed in us. And if you don't remember what chiastic is, and you have no idea what trees were, and any of those things, let's just let Christ be formed in us and know you're past the midway point. Every step you take down is actually a step up. That's just how that works. You humble yourself, He exalts you. You let go of reputation, He gives you reputation. You suffer death, He gives you life. That's the way this works. Sometime when we have more time and I have a little more energy, I'll show you 10 or 20 chiastic situations in the Bible. And they're all beautiful and they all tell the same story. You know whose life that is written on? Yours. Your testimony is a chiastic story. Say up. Let's pray. The best part about all chiastic stories is they have a turning point. The best part about chiastic poetry is that it has a turning point. The best part of the Exodus story is that when the law was broken, it was restored. The best part of the Philippians 2 story is that when he suffered death on a cross, God exalted him. What is the best part of your story? Have you reached your turning point? If this is your turning point, the best is still ahead of you. And you know what? Every step is better and better and better. I encourage you to maintain the same faith you had at the beginning at the end. Let it grow with you. Let it be increasing and increasing and increasing. And if it's not, shake yourself, slap yourself, do whatever you have to do, but wake up. Because this is life. This is the abundant life. Don't let anybody rob you, especially not your own thoughts. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.